Let's pray. Take us back, Lord. Take us back to when we first received you. Take us back to when we first believed. May we never forget that moment. That moment when our hopelessness led us to the cross. Where we found redemption, forgiveness, and purpose. Take us back, Lord, to when our hearts burned for you and our eyes were fixed on you alone. Father, visit with us now. As we study your word, give us open ears and open hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, Dr. Ohm recently sent out an email introducing a term I'd never heard of before. Apathyism. It's the greatest threat to Christianity and to the church today. Nearly a quarter of the way through the 21st century, the church is facing some of its most dire challenges yet. Recent poll findings suggested it's not just unbelievers who are cool to the gospel and all, all of the scriptural teachings. It's those who already identify as Christians. A newly released study from Nashville-based Lifeway Research has found that apathy inside the church is the most common challenge facing pastors today. 1,000 Protestant pastors were, were identified and, and given this survey in the Greatest Needs of Pastors study. And they were asked to identify the primary challenges facing their church. And the pastors were surveyed between March 30th and April 22nd of last year. The overwhelming response, 75% of pastors listed this. Apathy, lack of commitment. Self-identified followers of Jesus Christ, apathetic to his church. We know where atheists stand, right? We know how to counter their claims and their unbelief, but the article asks, what about apathyists? They just don't care enough to believe anything. Another article titled it, The Danger of Apathyism and the Power of Meh. That's the prevailing attitude today, isn't it? While church attendance globally has been on a steady decline, it took a sharp decline in this post-pandemic era. And pastors report that even church members who still attend meetings regularly show a concerning indifference and a lack of commitment. Apathy has crept into the church and is now the largest concern for pastors today. Apathy. The scriptures define it as lukewarmness. We're quite familiar with it. When we just don't care enough for something to move us into action. When we just don't care enough for something to, to even stir an opinion in us, we're apathetic. Listen, the truth is we're, we're all apathetic about most things in the world around us, aren't we? Don't deny it. Oh, I care about everything. I have an opinion about everything in the world. No, you don't. You don't. If I ask you for your position on recent rule changes for competitive underwater rugby leagues, how would you respond? Don't care. I don't really have an opinion on that. The truth of the matter is it's a small list of things we really care deeply about. 
and we have an opinion about. And our spiritual lives and our relationship with God should be at the top of that list. But sadly, as our hearts grow cold and as our passion list fills up with other things, well, God's position on our list starts to sink. It happens. We start to care a little less and a little less. Lukewarmness. That's what the Bible calls it. The definitive scriptural warning for lukewarmness is our text today. Turn with me in your Bibles or look up at the video screens to Revelation 3, 14 to 17. Here John is receiving his message from God while on the Isle of Patmos about what to tell the churches, seven churches he wrote letters to, what to tell them in order to correct their ways, how to right their ship. And here we get to the last of the seven churches. And let's read Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Stern warning, isn't it? What an assessment. To understand why, we we have to know a little bit about Laodicea. What do we know? Well, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, the city of Laodicea dwelt in the Lycus River Valley, located in Asia Minor. It's what is now the western part of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And within that Lycus River Valley, Laodicea shared a prosperous trade route with two other cities, two of its neighbors, Hierapolis to the north and Colossae to the south. And this is going to be important. The city was gorgeous. It reflected the splendor of Rome. It sat upon seven hills, just as did the ancient capital of the world. It contained three marbled theaters. A vast wall encompassed the city, and several prosperous industries bolstered the economy, which included banking, clothing manufacture, and a medical school. And all three industries are later referenced. We're going to read that in verse 18 in God's rebuke. Well, the surrounding land was rich and fertile due to the abundance of the water which flowed through the valley. Archaeologists later uncovered a system of aqueducts that entered Laodicea from the north and from the south to carry water, to transport water from, uh, from their neighbors. Apparently, the city didn't have a useful water supply of its own. Hierapolis from the north boasted hot springs, said to have medicinal purposes. And, and Colossae from the south lay claim to cold, cool, refreshing drinking water. And the people of Laodicea, they took great pride in their wealth and their successful economy and their industry, so much, in fact, that wealth became their idol. Though Christian in name, tragically, the Laodiceans had taken their eyes off of Jesus, and they looked to wealth as the fulfillment of their lives. In essence, they became like the world while bearing the name of Christ. It's a cautionary tale, and it's a common one today. Even as we sit here, 
even as we sit in these chairs and, and we call ourselves Christians, and we bear the name of Christ, our hearts can grow lukewarm. And our spirits can grow apathetic to His Word. Lukewarm. Better to be cold or hot than lukewarm, it said. And so often this is interpreted as to mean better to believe or uh, not believe than somewhere in between. That's what I always thought. Or better to be on fire for Christ or not on fire than somewhere in between. That's not what it means. It's not a justification or an excuse for unbelief. God was using their water problem as a mirror of their spiritual state. So it's important to, to note that when they brought water from the hot springs of Hierapolis, or they brought water in from the cool, cold, refreshing source of Colossae. By the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was worthless. It, it, it was neither sanitary, sanitary nor refreshing. And uh, that's what the scripture is referring to. That's what God is referring to. That was the state of their spiritual lives at the time. So imagine a stagnant room temperature puddle in your sink. You wouldn't drink it. You'd know that drinking it would make you sick. Didn't have healing purposes. It wasn't refreshing. What would you do? You'd spit it out. You'd get rid of it. It's worthless. Their water supply was just like their spiritual state. Lukewarm. So what good is a lukewarm Christian? What is the purpose of a lukewarm Christian? What role can a lukewarm Christian have in the church's aim of building the kingdom of God? More importantly, what happened? They had a church for the Lord there. At some point, they must have been on fire to start and open a church. What happened? What went wrong? How do we go from enthusiastic, passionate new believers to lukewarm deadweight for Christ? Well, in the case of the church of Laodicea, the people became enamored with themselves. They got caught up in the Roman culture of status and wealth. Their focus shifted. Their minds were pulled into the prideful trap of self-reliance, self-confidence, self-exaltation. They were so proud of their industrial success. Their banking resources, their talent at textile manufacturing, their amazing medical school and their great knowledge. They became arrogant, overconfident. Rather than placing their faith in Christ... And Christ alone, they placed it in everything else. Their resources, their talents, their knowledge. It's easy to do. We get confident, we get overconfident, and we forget the hand from where our blessings come. We forget the hand from from whom those resources come. From whom those talents are formed. From whom that knowledge is given. God is the giver of all good gifts. Why take pride in those gifts? They're not of our own doing. They come from God. And they should be used for God. Listen to what God instructs them to do. Keep going. Verse 17, he said, we read this, I am rich, you say. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here's how. You pride in your wealth and resources. They won't last. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich. You pride in your beautiful textiles. I offer you white clothes to wear. So you can cover your shameful nakedness. You pride in your medicine. 
I offer you salve to put on your eyes so you can truly see. The truth of the matter is that as great as we think we are, our resources are, our talents, our solutions, God's are infinitely better. His last. His solutions last. His, his solutions heal permanently. His resources are infinite. His knowledge has no limits. What was the end of the story of the Laodiceans? Well, tragically, in AD 60, a massive earthquake destroyed the city. The proud, wealthy citizens who survived took upon themselves the task to rebuild the city by their own means. They refused any financial aid offered from Rome, but they failed. The city was left destroyed and in rubble. Gone were the beautiful marble theaters. Gone were the the aqueducts and the mighty walls of the city. Those who survived lost everything and ended up abandoning the city to disperse. And in the end, their resources couldn't save them and and their talent couldn't save them and their knowledge couldn't save them. And their beautiful city became a footnote in history. So if we find ourselves today where those Laodiceans were, blinded into thinking we've got all the answers and little room for God in our lives, How do we course correct? How do we course correct before it's too late? Well, we start by identifying what drew us away. Clearly, we started with a commitment to Christ. Laodiceans did. But what stole our hearts? What shifted our focus? What robbed us of our passion for Christ? Go back to that place. Like the song said, take me back to when my heart was yours. Our dear brother, Dean, read a letter from him. Missionary uh, in Spain, Karl Knott, preached a sermon in this very room about sheep that jump the fence and get lost. And they can't find their way back unless they retrace their steps to the point at which they jump the fence, and then they can re-enter. Go back to that place. Go back to where you jump the fence and return to him. Life is busy, friend, I get it. In the midst of our crazy days, it's it's hard sometimes to even find the, the, the focus and the time to contemplate where we are with Christ. But it's critical. It's crucial. Our joy, our hope, our stability, our very lives depend on it. Do you find yourself today busy, spinning away, rushed, Always busy doing something and yet never satisfied in life? Well, that's a red flag. Something is wrong. It's crucial to stop and take our spiritual temperatures. In all honesty and in all openness with God, we're going to talk about three things today. Three things to ask ourselves. First, do I have a willing spirit? When God asks me to do something, do I jump? Do I obey? David prayed in in Psalm 51.10. He said, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In David's repentance and confession, he prayed that God would give him a willing or a steadfast spirit. He connected that willing spirit to the joy of salvation. And it's true. He asked the Lord to restore unto him the joy of salvation and sustain him with a willing spirit. 
A willing spirit depends upon having the joy of salvation. When we have the joy of salvation, we spontaneously will have a willing spirit to go along with the Lord, whatever He asks, whatever He wants, what He desires. We will have a willing spirit to answer. The willing spirit is connected to the joy of salvation. And what happens is we lose that joy. How? Sin. Sin is always the thing and only the thing that gets in the way of our joyful spirit, of the joy of salvation. And what did David do? He prayed for the Lord to restore unto him the joy of salvation. It took repentance to gain forgiveness and the restoration of his joy that led to his willing spirit. When we're clean with God, our spirits are willing and open to do whatever he asks. Friend, how do you respond when God asks something of you? How do you respond when you're asked to serve in some capacity? How do you respond when there's an obvious need and you know you can fill it? How do you respond when your conscience is telling you not to do something? Whoa, stop. I have one son who shall remain nameless. (laughs) Who by nature sees requests from his parents as an invitation. God bless his little heart. An invitation to enter negotiations. We ask something, he goes, ah, negotiations are now open. I think he might have a future in law, Dave. So now what I do is I preface every request with Jordan, or name of child. (laughs) This is a non-negotiable request. God needs to do that sometimes with us, doesn't He? Friend, do you have a spirit that's willing to obey God whatever the ask? If you find yourself slow to respond, reluctant to obey, throwing up the excuses, negotiating with God, unwilling to change, it's a red flag. You're in lukewarm territory. Take note and take heed. Kelly Williams faced a hard question when he was launching a new church plant in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And during the initial stages, the attendance fluctuated, but it never exceeded a handful. Well, one night, nobody showed up. Zero parishioners, zero guests, no one. He was alone. And he faced the fact that he might not be cut out for church planting, that he could fail, And as he flirted with quitting, he opened his Bible to John 10. And he read Jesus' words about the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And as he read, Kelly heard God's voice. I know you're willing to be a success for me, but are you willing to be a failure for me? Are you willing to lay down your life for these sheep? His open Bible opened his heart. Yes, Lord. Yes, Williams prayed, I'll lay down my life for these sheep. If it's your will, this is the hill I'll die on. I'll fight to the bitter end. Those who are willing to be a success for God are many. But those who are desperate for God and want Him, even if it means being a failure, are the blessed few. Kelly went on to establish a flourishing church, but the point is he was willing to follow God's will for his life wherever it took him. He had a willing spirit. 
not just willing to follow God's will in the good times, not just willing to follow Him for the blessings, willing to follow Him through anything, anywhere, anytime, for any reason, and with any outcome. That's a willing spirit. Do I have a willing spirit? That's our first question. Do I have a spirit that's willing? Our second question, do I have a heart that's tender? When I hear God's message, when I hear His word, am I convicted? Is my heart pierced by His word? Whenever I think or hear the term tender heart, I think of young King Josiah. The young king who followed a a very evil grandfather and father as the 16th king of Judah. But he was different. And during the repair of the temple, Hilkiah, the high priest, discovered the book of the law, the word of God, which makes you wonder how far did Judah have to fall that the law of God was discarded and hidden as as a lost relic. But when the book was opened in the king's presence and when it was read, it sparked an immediate response. The king tore his clothes and, and he sent a message to a prophetess named uh, Huldah who lived in Jerusalem. And she informed them that their land was on the brink of disaster because of idolatry. And she sent a message of grace from God to the king. 2 Kings twenty two nineteen to 20. God told him, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard, And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. I will indeed gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disasters that I'm bringing to this place. Josiah made a commitment to keep the commands of the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul. The people he led agreed to follow him. And Josiah goes about demolishing every every source of idolatry in the land and observing the Lord's Passover for the first time in many, many years. He acted the right way. His heart was immediately moved. Are we like that? When we hear a message, does it stir us? When conviction comes, does it move us? Or have we built up walls? Walls to avoid feeling bad. Walls to avoid change. Have we become so hardened, so defensive, that we're reluctant to listen? The Bible's filled with so many warnings against having a hard heart, hundreds of them. Verses like Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Romans 2, 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Ephesians 4.18 They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Hebrews 3.8 Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Hebrews 3.13 but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Over and over again, we're asked to beware. Have a tender heart. Keep your heart soft. 
Be tender to God's word. Lord, is my heart tender to your word, to your ways, to your people? How can we have a tender heart? Romans 10, 17 tells us, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith is the tenderizer. Faith is the tender, dependent opposite of rebellion and resistance and self-reliance. And faith comes from hearing. Are you hearing Christ through the noise of your world? Are you listening? What voice are you listening to? If it's not the voice of Christ, that voice will only condition you and lead you to a place of hardening your heart when the Lord really does speak to you. Let my eyes be fixed on Christ and let my ears be attentive to his leading. Lord, give me a tender heart. A.W. Tozer wrote, A person with a tender heart is keenly aware of every infraction against the Lord. He recognizes sin for the ugly thing that it is. Immoral deeds, though seemingly insignificant to others, are viewed by him as monstrous crimes against a holy God. Their importance, while not exaggerated, is internally magnified so that their true insidious nature may be clearly seen. The person with a tender heart also remains consistently open to the Holy Spirit's conviction. He's not looking to push the limits of sin, to see how much he can get away with, but to avoid it altogether. Sin to him is a poison which must be eradicated at any cost. Most people who have experienced a true conversion begin their new life with this kind of spiritual sensitivity. The eyes of the heart have been opened to the wonders of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. What a beautiful description. So what happened between then and now? How did our hearts go from soft to hardened against God's word? Check your hearing. Strange advice for a heart problem. Check your hearing. Who are you listening to? What replaced God's word in your life? If we find ourselves unmoved, our conscience unpricked by things that used to convince us and convict us, friend, it's a red flag. Who are you listening to? We're in lukewarm territory and our spiritual temperature is not what it should be. Do I have a spirit that's willing? Do I have a heart that's tender? And lastly, do I have an outlook that's hopeful? Is my view of tomorrow filled with God's hope or have I become negative and jaded? When you think about your future, friend, how do you feel? I tell you, it's easy in this world around us to look around and, and feel frightened, feel apprehensive. If we focus our eyes on the political climate, I'm not sure it's ever been worse. On the economic climate, on the social climate, on the medical climate, on the wars going on around us, we throw our hands up. Clinical depression is at an all-time high, and I can see why. But the key phrase is, if you look around you. If our focus is on what's around us, we will be hopeless, no doubt about it. But if our focus is on the one who transcends what's around us, we have a hope that endures forever. We have a hope that won't be shaken. We have a hope that doesn't expire. Hebrews 6.11 says, 
And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Hope remains. Hope can always remain or abide because of what, or rather who, it is built on. God. If our hope is built on God, it will survive. It will endure. It will conquer anything that we see around us. Our hope isn't built on finite things or temporary things, but it's built on the eternal, the all-powerful God who calls himself the God of hope. True hope originates with him. And if we put our trust in him, nothing can take that away because nothing that happens in this life can take him away. Hope is essential for living for God. Losing hope causes us to lose courage, to lose our fight. And losing heart leads to blindness and vision. Vision. If there's no hope, there's no vision for what God can do in our lives. Israel had this problem at a very important time. When the Israelites had been brought back to their land after captivity, they came and they saw a city that was in ruins. And the temple in which they worshipped their God was destroyed. It was laid waste. And it would have to be completely rebuilt from the ground up. And it was a daunting task. And they'd given up. The people gave up on rebuilding the temple. They lost hope. And they lost their vision. They needed a vision for what could be. That the days of the, of the temple were not just in the past. And look what God tells them through the prophet Haggai. In Haggai 2.9, he says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. It will be better than it ever was. Is that hope? The best is yet to come. We say that, but those aren't trite words because they're founded on someone we know who makes the future better. Friend, we have the God of hope on our side. He specializes in hope. And not just words, not just empty hope. Hope fulfilled. Hope delivered. Hope realized. Hope guaranteed. He not only produces the vision, he makes it happen. He realizes it. He provides the strength, the resources, the time, the miracles, even the desire in our hearts. Did that temple get rebuilt? Oh, yeah. Was it greater than the previous one? By a lot. Feel discouraged? Look no further than to the God of hope. The best is yet to come. Amen? Claire Booth once said, There are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. Always remember that. There's no situation, there's no circumstance that's hopeless. It's only you who have lost hope. For God, nothing is impossible. There's nothing He can't fix. He can't change, reverse, alter. There's no mountain He can't bring down. The God who split the Red Sea, the God of angel armies, is standing right by your side. There's no reason for hopelessness when you can call upon Him. And if you do, your present will be blessed and your future will be brighter than you can imagine. Chuck Swindoll is quoted as saying, 
we can live several weeks without food, several days without water, and only minutes without oxygen. But without hope, forget it. Friend, have you lost your hope? Are you in a place where you look at the future with, with jaded eyes, with hopelessness? Do you find yourself always gravitating to the negative, to the fearful? If so, look to the God of hope. He never meant us to live in fear. He doesn't want us to live in hopelessness. He doesn't want us to be negative. Your future is bright if your eyes are on the Lord. Do I have a willing spirit? Do I have a tender heart? Do I have a hopeful outlook? These are three questions we should ask ourselves. Three key markers for our spiritual temperature. If you find yourself today lukewarm, like those Laodiceans were, how do you course correct? What do we do to fix it? Well, all of these markers have the same root cause, and we talked about all of them. We're looking at something else. We're listening to something else. We're hopeful about or have we placed our trust in something else. Our faith is in ourselves, our resources, our talents, our knowledge, our friends, the people around us, society, what society tells us we should think. All of these things, how far do they go? How far can our own strength, our own resources, how far can they go? They might go far, but they will inevitably fail. Could they prevent that earthquake that destroyed their beautiful city? No. They couldn't even rebuild after the fact. What did God tell the Laodiceans to do? Rely upon me. Rely on his resources, his sufficiencies, his knowledge, his healing. Shift your faith to me. Shift your focus to me. Shift your dependence upon me. Shift your hope to me. Go back to where your spirit was willing, your heart was tender, and your outlook was hopeful. Lord, take me back. Take me back to when my dependence was in you, not in me, not in my resources, not in those around me. Only he will never let us down. He will never fail you. He will never expire. He will never waver. He is the rock upon which we must build our entire lives. And if we do, we won't be shaken. We won't be abandoned. We won't be distraught. We won't live hopeless. We will be hot Christians who will soothe the hurting around us. And we will be cold Christians who will refresh the weak and tired around us. But we will not be lukewarm Christians. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for being the source of all goodness in our lives. Help us to build every part of our lives and our families, and our relationships, and our ministries, and our church on you. Give us willing spirits, ready to serve you, and do whatever you ask of us. Give us tender hearts, soft to your word, able to hear your voice through the noise of this world, and be changed by it. And give us a hopeful outlook, based not on ourselves, on others, on anything in this world around us, but on you, the God of all hope. 
we trust and believe that the best is yet to come. Light the fire within us, Father, and help us to go out as your representatives to offer the soothing balm of your healing and the cool, refreshing waters of your salvation to a hurting and thirsty world. Thank you, Father. Thank you for using us for the glory of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.